0: Today's scripture reading, we continue in the book of Micah, chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them, and he will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its profits, practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Micah 4, 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the later days that in the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us in his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall not beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, the who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure." For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images, and among you, and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on all on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, family. How you doing? Good,
0: Good. My wireless microphone is out of
1: commission today, so I'm going to be slinging this guy for the next 40 minutes. So I'm sorry. It's probably going to prove to be a little bit obnoxious and it's just it is what it is. All right, let's pray and uh, we will get right down to work. Father, we thank you for choosing to show us mercy rather than the judgment that we deserve. We know you still have to execute justice, and so we understand that's why you sent Jesus to be the rescuing king in our place, and he absorbed all the justice that was due us, and he absorbed it on the cross. He takes our rebellion, and he gives us his rightness, his righteousness, and we are qualified to be adopted in as your sons and daughters, and so we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to die so that we could live. But we thank you that you're not dead. We thank you that you put death in the grave. You rose again, and you live on our behalf now. And we thank you for giving us your spirit. You are not physically present with us, but you have poured out your spirit into our, into our lives. And, and so we pray again that you would pour out your spirit on us again this morning. We recognize that is the only way that we live. It's through your spirit, Father, that we hear your voice And it's through your spirit that our hearts, our our hearts with so many remaining rebel tendencies are reoriented on you. And that's what we need this morning. And so, Father, we thank you for loving us and showing us mercy. Jesus, we thank you for taking the justice that was due in our place. And Spirit, we thank you for bringing our hearts to life. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in week two of our Micah series. And uh, Micah, as we understand it, is our story talking about systemic rebellion in our hearts, but surprising hope. Systemic rebellion, but surprising hope. Micah, what we learned last week about Micah was he was a prophet. And what we know about prophets is that they speak on behalf of God to God's people to call God's people back. And so God sent Micah to address the systemic rebellion of his people. And this book contains their story, and if we will have eyes to see it, we will understand that Micah contains our story as well. What we learned last week also is true to prophetic form. Micah brings it hard, and he he speaks three cycles of doom. Just he, He brings it. But true to form, the gospel's final word is always hope. And so after each cycle of doom, if you will, Micah is sure to bring a word of hope from our father. Micah's a friend. He's a good friend. He's a good friend because so many friends in our culture will tell us what they think we need to hear, or they'll tell us what we want to hear. Micah's the one friend who tells us what we actually need to hear, and that's the voice of our dad, and he's just straight up. He brings it, but he's not a jerk about it. Micah brings a whole bunch of empathy, and this is what we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 8. This is Micah's posture. I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation and mourning because your wound, friend, is incurable. So we have a friend who tells us the truth but also feels our pain and sits in the pain with us and mourns for the consequences of our rebellion with us. And this is what we saw last week. Our sin would be an incurable wound, disaster if not for Jesus, our rescuing shepherd king. And here's what we'll see today. Rebel hearts misuse power. They always misuse power, position, or influence. But our rescuing shepherd king will use his power to restore not only the wounded ones, but the ones doing the wounding. Our rescuing shepherd king will use his power to restore. So let's just break that sentence into two, and we'll start with the first half and conclude with the second half. The first half. Rebel hearts misuse power to rule. Our rebel hearts tend to misuse power, position, and influence for selfish reasons at the expense of other people. That's exactly what Stephen Um said. He, uh, this is a quote from his book. He says, misused power is taking the influence God has given you for the sake of the common good, that's why he's given it to you, and using it against others for selfish gain. So the question that we would have then as people approaching our father's voice is what exactly does our dad have to say to those who misuse power or position or influence for selfish gain? What does he have to say about that? Well, he's got a clear word, because in Micah's day, lots of people were misusing their power, position, and influence. Just like our day. Nothing really changes, does it? Micah's going to address three groups of people. Prophets, one category. Priests, another category. And then a third category we'll just call kings, and I'll explain that when we get there. Let's start with the prophets. Prophets are called by God to speak hard things, and hopeful things to God's people. Prophets tell us the truth, but they've gotta tell us the hard truth. They have gotta be honest with us. So they speak hard things, uncomfortable things, the kinds of things you don't really wanna say to the people you're closest to. Prophets say those things on behalf of God. But again, cycle of doom, cycle of hope. They also speak words of hope to bring our, to point our hearts back to the Father who loves us. So prophets speak hard and hopeful things on behalf of God. God sends prophets to confront abuses of power to speak truth to power, to advocate for the weak, the marginalized, and the poor. Prophets ultimately have one responsibility, and that is to lead people to God, either out of their abuses of power or out of their experiences of pain. Prophets are supposed to lead people to God, but that was not happening in Micah's day. We see that in chapter three, verse five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people to me. Lead my people away from me. They lead them astray. And in fact, they cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. In other words, if you're paying the prophet, if your power could benefit the prophet, he's going to speak peace to you all day long and prop you up. But if you're marginalized, poor, powerless, unable to uh, build the prophet's platform, he's just coming against you. And that's what was happening in Micah's day. In verse 11 of the same chapter, we read that their prophets were even practicing divination for money. Uh, two really wrong things about that sentence. First of all, divination was not even an approved tool in a prophet's toolbox. Like divination's whack. It's pagan. It's evil. Divination, man, that includes like the bloody organs from a dead squirrel, twigs, bark, branches, dirt, rocks, uh, your, your signs in the heavens. Like, it has nothing to do with God. Nothing to do with God. So they were practicing divination and they were doing it for money. The bottom line is being a prophet in Micah's day was meant to be a not-for-profit gig. So when you see a prophet profiting off of people, not, not for profit any longer, that's not a prophet. When you see a prophet propping up the powerful rather than protecting the poor, that's no prophet. He's nothing more than a Prop. And the prophets in Micah's day were misusing and abusing their position in power, and in fact, they were making God a political prop so that they could gain more power. Wow, didn't we see that in our most recent election cycle, and don't we see that year in and year out? Guys, nothing changes under the sun. Rebel hearts. So Micah calls them out. And then the priests. Man, it was tragic that the The prophets were misusing power, almost more tragic that the priests were misusing power, position, influence, because priests exist to care for God's family, soul care. Priests exist to care for the bruises of God's people and to mend the broken. That's why priests exist. That's why God calls them shepherds over and over and over again. And we know from the scripture that shepherds, by God's design, are meant to be supported financially by the people but not profiting off of them. There shouldn't be rich, wealthy shepherds that are living above uh, the means of their people. Uh, yeah, interestingly, prophets were not, were not supported by the people at all. Dangerous to include money in a prophet's role. So no money. Uh, priests were supported by the people, but again, supported, not profiting. But look what happens here. Verse 11, it's priests teach for a price. They'd stopped caring about the bruises of God's people and cared a whole lot more about the branding of their name or their platform or their church plant. Bruises fell into the shadows as branding came into the spotlight. Paychecks and popularity drove their platform and God's shepherds who were created to care for God's people, the shepherds had turned into wolves. Wolves. And then the kings. I call them kings because the words that Micah uses in this chapter, heads and rulers, pretty broad. And so that would include village elders, political officers, judges in court. So you basically have like the religious leaders and the secular leaders. And Micah's just coming at both of them. So the kings, in verse 1 to 3, Micah says, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? It's a rhetorical question. The, the answer is, well, absolutely, yes. And it's not just like a knowledge of it, but a practicing of justice. Yeah, it is. Because they knew that leaders with power, position, or influence had been given those positions of power or influence by God, and they had been given limits with them. In other words, God's design has always been whether it's we're talking about spiritual leaders or secular governmental leaders, God has imposed limitations because those leaders exist not for their own fame or flourishing, but for the flourishing of people. And so there are limits to protect abuses. Micah continues, but you hate the good and love the evil. You tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them. It's pretty graphic. And you break their bones in pieces and you chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. What Mike is referring to is actually the barbaric practices that were employed by the invading Assyrian armies. They did this stuff to a conquered enemy. They would keep you alive and peel your skin and then chop you up and just destroy your body while you could feel the pain. So this is something that enemies did. And so this is God's way of saying, the leaders of my people have actually become their enemies. The very people, they're supposed to help flourish. They're now feeding off of those people. My kings have turned cannibal. He continues in verse nine. "Hear this, then, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the House of Israel, who detest justice. They're supposed to know and practice, just do justice, but they detest justice. And they make crooked all that is straight. who build, build Zion with blood, they built their empire with blood the blood of the marginalized and the enslaved and the poor and the powerless, and they built Jerusalem with iniquity, so much injustice. This is the Bible's way of talking about institutionalized or systemic injustice. And unfortunately, we have been taught in our circles by religious voices to be suspicious of terms like institutional injustice or social injustice or systemic injustice or racial injustice. Well, guess what? Those are Bible categories, and here it is right here in black and white. And here's the cold reality... Systemic injustice will exist in every culture because of the systemic rebellion in our hearts. You got systemic rebellion in your heart? There will be systemic injustice in your home. And so we, as followers of Jesus, should be suspicious of any Christian leader who denies this reality, be suspicious of any, quote, prophetic voice, shepherds, pastors, religious leaders with platforms who side with power or majority population while working to silence or discredit the voices of minority populations or of the powerless or of the marginalized. Systemic injustice is a reality in our homes because of the systemic rebellion in our hearts it's just a simple gospel truth and what does God have to say about abuses of power position or influence he's got a very clear word and there are very real personal consequences look at this in verse 4 then they those who abuse power position influence will cry to the Lord but he will not answer them well you don't read that in scripture very much what do you normally normally read if you cry out to God not here no answer, no response. In fact, he's going to hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. This is God's way of saying when judgment comes, there will be no mercy for the merciless. There should be no expectation of mercy for those who have practiced injustice and have never repented or turned from it. There are two key words or phrases in that sentence. The first one is then, right at the beginning of the, of the verse, then. And then a little further on where it says, um, um, at that time. So it's pointing future, right? In other words, it's saying, now is the time to cry out to the Lord for mercy. If you wait until, to use Micah's words, then or that time future, it will be too late for you. He will hear you now. You will know mercy now but he will close his ears and hide his face then. In other words, the gospel would say to you, today is the day for you as a rebel to call out to Jesus for rescue. Tomorrow will be too late. Tomorrow's gonna be too late. You gotta call out today, now. Verses six and seven, more consequence. Therefore, for those who abuse power, uh, position, or influence, it will be night to you. You will lose your vision. It will be darkness to you without divination The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They will all cover their lips, for there will be no answer from God. This is God's way of saying the sun will go down on all injustice. It is a season that is closing. So that's a good word for the oppressed and a sobering word for the oppressor. The good word for the oppressed is take heart. The sun is going down. The sun is setting on all injustice. This is God's heart. He is working to eradicate all injustice from the brokenness of our world. And it will finally be true when Jesus returns as the perfectly just king. But that is, um, that is the we talk about justice being bent in, in history. Well, God is bending it back out to be straight so that when Jesus returns, all injustice is gone. So for those of you who suffer as a marginalized person or in a powerless people group, if you've suffered any injustice in, the, in your lifetime or in an ongoing way, Jesus is working to eradicate it. The sun is going down for the oppressor. This is a sobering word for any who have misused power. What you need to know is the sun is setting on your opportunity to do justice. And what I mean by that is you need to turn to the God who created you and understand he's going to pour out his justice. It's either going to be poured out on you or it's going to be poured out on Jesus who could be the substitute in your place. And your greatest need before you fix the injustice around you or the injustice that you've caused with other people is to be justly related to God through Jesus. That's your greatest need. You've got to do that justice or have it done on your behalf. And then the fruit that will flow from that is that you will be able to do justice with other image bearers and, um, and work to correct the injustices that have been done. But the sun is setting on your opportunity. And God would say when leaders misuse position or power, consequences are not just personal, they're community-wide. Verse 12, look at this. Therefore, because of you, Zion, a nickname for their city, will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of those a wooded or overgrown height it'll just be overgrown with weeds and that happened we know in 586 like that came true in history it came true in history because they didn't listen to micah's voice ultimately but look at in verse 8, Micah says, As for me, I am, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. Why? Why did Micah exist? To declare to Jacob his transgression. Jacob's a name for God's people. And to Israel, another name for God's people, his sin. Micah was the voice they had to listen to. Guys, Micah is the voice that we must listen to today. It's the voice that God has given to wake us up that the sun is going down there will not be another voice after that. Like this is the voice now in this season before the sun sets. And Micah, if you were here in the room with us, which coincidentally, coincidentally he is through his book, Micah would look us in the eyes and say, you've got rebel hearts too. So this isn't just their story. This is our story. We misuse power. We misuse power. Back to Stephen Umms' quote, "Misuse power is taking the influence God has given you for the sake of the common good and using it against others for selfish gain. Now I get it. Nobody in here is a prophet, priest, or king, but indisputably, indisputably, God has given every one of you influence in some sphere of life. Some of you have positions of power. We all have influence. So the question then becomes, when have I used that influence or that position or power for selfish gain at the expense of others? Or when have I been passive in the expression of that influence, position, or power to the neglect of those who were suffering and I could have spoken up to the injustice or acted? And there's a heart behind this injustice. We see it in verse 2 of chapter 3. Micah says to them, listen, here's the heart behind all of this brokenness. You hate the good and love the evil. And you're like, God, I don't hate the good and love the evil. I love good. But what do we learn in the Gospels? That people love darkness more than they love light. Why? Hard-hitting truth, right? We Because our deeds are evil, because the light exposes that, yeah, we have hearts just like these people who have misused position, power, or influence. So anytime my heart, my affections, my will turn away from God, I am bent towards injustice. Anytime my eyes look away from Him, I will tend to misuse my influence, power, or position. Anytime my ears tune Him out, when my fame and flourishing trump His fame and your flourishing... I will misuse my influence. When my ears close to the cries of injustice, when I am suspicious of the powerless and supportive of the powerful. Guys, Micah helps us think honestly. He helps us to see that, yes, in my lifetime, I have used or I am using position power or influence for selfish gain. History is filled with examples of prophets, priests, and kings who misuse and abuse power. Guys, our news cycle is filled with stories of leaders, prophets, priests, and kings still, who misuse and abuse power, position, and influence. Injustice abounds in every culture. My own life is full of examples where I have misused position or influence or power. My life is full of examples where I have been wounded by other people who have misused influence, power, or position. See, Micah's cycle of doom should hit hard because we're all included. We're all included in this cycle. But what has the final word in the gospel? Doom, hope. And that's really good news for us. And it was really good news for them as well. So the second piece of our sentence, hope has the final word because a rescuing shepherd king will use his power to restore. Well, when? When will he do this? Like, we could kind of use that right now, couldn't we? Look at verse one of chapter four. Micah says, hang in there this restoration will come to pass in the latter days, or you could say the days yet to come, or the days future. And when the Bible uses that phrase, latter days, what it is referring to that we just see this over and over and over again in the New Testament, the latter days, or the later days, begin with Jesus' first advent to earth, when he came and he was born of Mary to be our shepherding, rescuing king. That's like when the clock started to tick in the latter day season. So that's the season we're in now. And then what we understand from scripture, especially the book of Revelation, those latter days will conclude when Jesus, our shepherding king, returns the second time. Remember, he's bending the crooked injustices back out straight and they will be Finally straight and just, only at his return. So we are in what people like to refer as the already, but not yet. He's already doing this work, but we're not yet there. There's a lot of injustice still in between. We're in the in-between. But when the work is done, it will be an absolute and complete reversal of the brokenness that we exist in now. Look at verse one, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and it will be lifted up above the hills. What have we read about the mountains in the first half of Micah? What's going to happen to them? God's going to come down out of his place and he's going to walk all over them and they are going to dissolve and disappear. They'll be the lowest point and nobody will want to be there. But as our rescuing shepherd king does his restoring work, it becomes the highest place and a place of life, and people will want to be where the shepherding king is doing his work. Look at verse 2. What does he say? Peoples will what? Flow to it, and many nations will come. That's being fulfilled now. Like, if you want physical evidence that Jesus is working justice in this world now, and it will finally be just when He comes, uh, you can look. the The visible demonstration of that is the gathered church that is global and all around the world. We are the evidence that there is a restoring Shepherd and King, making things right and restoring a rebel people to their Creator God. It's the evidence that we see every day and every time we gather. It's being fulfilled now in part. It'll be complete then, the already but not yet. And when it is complete, verses 3 to 4, it will be, we'll see a kingdom of justice and peace. Look at this. He will judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Like finally, perfect justice will be known for the first time when Jesus returns as, as rescuing king. And what will be the consequence of that? All people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Listen, neither will they learn war anymore. Y'all gonna be out of the job. The kingdom of God does not have a department of defense because it doesn't need one. It doesn't need one. But remember, we're in the already not yet. And the New Testament speaks clearly about the messiness of this time and about how he's given the authority of the sword to civil governments to execute justice and to protect people groups. So take a deep breath. You're in a legit God-approved line of work now when it's executed justly, right? Legit line of work. I'm just telling you, uh, get that second degree or get something else going on because the your line of work's going away. It's going away. No Department of Defense. but we're in the already, not yet, and it's messy, and we wait. Verse 4, but they, look at this, when it's complete, they will sit, every man, you could understand that, every person, every man or woman, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That is a picture of not only peace and security, that is also a picture of equity and dignity. Look at this, every person sitting under what? The landlord's vine, his employer's vine, his own vine his own, her own vine, under his or her own fig tree. Not only peace and security, but equity and dignity, which will be known fully in Jesus' kingdom. And in that day, verses 6 to 7, look at this. This is beautiful. God says, I will assemble the lame. And I'm going to, most kingdoms discard the lame. And you know it's injustice deep down. You know the powerless and the lame are mistreated in every culture. It's it's an expression of our systemic rebellion. Jesus, as the just, restoring, rescuing king, will gather in the lame. And he will gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. Notice that. Who afflicted? God afflicted. So judgment known, but out of that judgment, rescue and adoption into the family, and the lame I will make the remnant, my my people, my special people, and those who were cast off, I'm going to make them a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So we're talking about a forever kingdom when injustice will finally be eradicated and justice known it's not for a little while it's not going to fall apart this is what we were created for and it is a forever kingdom it's a beautiful picture listen if you're not a christian and you're here man i'm so glad that you're here and i just want to say this to you if you long for social justice Man, that's commendable, and it's beautiful that you long for justice, and that you have eyes to see that there is injustice in this world. Let me just say this to you. If you long for social justice, behind that longing, it's actually this kingdom that you long for. You don't know it by name, and maybe you haven't seen it before, but in your heart's desire for justice, it's actually this kingdom that you want, and you know it. You know it. Man, if, if it were true that we just randomly existed and we happened to be, and we're just here for a season, and survival of the fittest is true. It's the law of the land. And then after death, we just cease to exist. What is justice? What is justice? What's beautiful? So, if that's true, why do you have a desire for justice? Why can you see injustice? Why do you want equity? Where do those desires and feelings come from? If survival of the fittest were really true, justice would be you doing you and making sure you and your people survive at any cost. But you all know that's not just. Why? If there's not an arbiter of justice, if there's not a stand, if there's not a giver of beauty and of life, where does that desire, where does that sense even come from? Man, I'm telling you, when you long for social justice, you are longing for this king and his kingdom. It's going to be filled with the lame, the driven away, the afflicted, and the cast off. And guys, listen, I just, as your friend, I I want you to make sure you hear this. There's nothing that matters more to you today than for you to see yourself as one of the lame and one of the driven away and one of the afflicted and one of the cast off. That's who you are. Wounded, yes. Have you been wounded by injustice? No doubt. But if Micah were here in person, he would look you in the eye and say, you are also the wounder. You're wounded, yes. But you're also a wounder. You're a wounding one. Sure, power has been used against you. Some of you in our family have been oppressed and you have experienced injustice and I've heard your stories and it's ongoing for some of you. Maybe because of uh, your skin color or the uh, socio-economic demographic that you grew, grew up in or the region, of the country, or education, whatever it is. Tons of stories of injustice in our family all over the place if we will have ears to hear them. Legitimate woundings in our family. Legitimate woundings. Very real lived experiences. But guys, for every one of us, oppressed or oppressor, wounded or not, Micah would look us in the eyes and say, our rebel hearts also misuse power and position and influence. And there's a real consequence for that. But we saw the consequence in this cycle of doom, but the, the word we need to see is this word of hope that restoration is there for those who will admit they are lame and cast off because of their rebel hearts. You will know mercy. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. I love this. Micah is asking him questions. He's like, hey guys, why are you crying? You don't have a king, right? Kings, you don't have a just king, you don't have a king so there's systemic injustice that should make you cry your counselor's dead the words of wisdom like culturally is dead that should make you cry you're in pain right like you're having a baby expression of injustice is not supposed to hurt that bad ladies i've heard it hurts not supposed to right another demonstration of the brokenness you're in pain like childbirth right micah says that's good you should be writhing and groaning you should be in pain because you're about to be exiled, the consequence for their injustice, that was God's judgment in that short season. But look at the second half of verse 10. Through the judgment, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In other words, your labor pain because of your brokenness will give birth to life. It should give birth to death, tragedy, devastation, and heartbreak. But the gospel speaks a better word of hope, and the restoring king will give you life out of that pain if you will see yourself as lame and cry out to him for that healing. Micah says, your enemies surround you, but I don't matter. Verse 12, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He has gathered them as sheaves to the floor, threshing floor, even the people that would be judging God's family. So while that's true of, of those nations, but we, guys, we just have to be honest too. How often could that be said of us? We don't understand our own dad's plan. Our eyes get so fixed on our hearts and injustice and woundings, and we forget he is working a better word of hope. God is going to use his power to restore. How? Through his promised rescuing shepherd king. All the prophets failed, all the priests failed, all the kings failed. They wrecked people through selfish rule. But God was going to send a true prophet, a better priest, and a right king, and this one would use his power to restore erect people. That's what we see in verse 2 of chapter 5, you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little. In other words, you're the least likely place of rescue for my people, but watch this. Watch what I'm going to do. You're the least likely place among all the clans of Judah, but from you will come forth for me one who is to be ruler, the rightful king in Israel whose coming forth is from of old. It's always been the plan. Always been the plan. It's from old. From ancient days. Bethlehem was the birthplace of David, their favorite king. A jacked up king, but kind of the best jacked up king they'd had. Uh, So this was hugely symbolic, right? Like the promised king was supposed to come from Bethlehem, but it was also a shepherding place. So what is that showing us, right? God is sending a shepherd king to restore his people. Verses four to five, and this shepherd king will stand. Uh, When we see that word in the Bible, Stand is an enduring word, standing up on behalf. So this shepherding king is gonna stand up on behalf of all of his broken and rebel people and nothing will be able to knock him down. Like you think your rebellion is so great that God's only gonna barely be able to forgive you. Nah, nah. Jesus is gonna stand and nothing will knock him down and he will work mercy for his rebel kids. Look at, that's what he says. He's gonna shepherd. That care you need for your bruised soul it comes from Jesus, the one true shepherd. He's going to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And because of this, we will dwell secure. Because now he will be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Guys, just another word to you. Man, if you're a non-Christian and you're here with us, I'm so glad you're here. I know you want peace. All of our hearts long for peace. That is a shared human experience. We want peace. And it's so elusive, isn't it? Peace is so elusive. You only know it as an impersonal thing to be had. The gospel tells us peace is a person to have relationship with. So you long for peace. I just want to tell you as your friend behind that longing, you're actually longing for a shepherd king. You're longing for not a thing, but a person, and his name is Jesus. And that's why the Bible calls him the prince of peace. He's the rightful shepherd king. He, he, he brings the peace. And without him, you will never know peace. So behind your longing for peace which is commendable and you want peace for our world and you want peace where there is injustice beautiful and right and god-given behind that your longing for the shepherd and king the shepherd and king is going to gather a people, says to the ends of the earth. That's what he's doing right now. That's what, that's what churches are, imperfect, messy. But of course they're imperfect and messy. Why? Because we're in the already, not yet. All kinds of mess and brokenness. Like we want a perfect church. Guys, hang on. It's not happening until like over here. And we are way back over here. We talk about Jesus eradicating injustice. The reason we're all so messy is he's working to eradicate the injustice in my heart and in your heart. Okay? So the already, but not yet. But this is what he's doing. Global family. And there's gonna be three qualities of this family. We'll close with this. The rest of chapter five talks about how this shepherding, this rescuing shepherd king will have a family that is fearless. It will exist for the good of people. And it will be for a sign against rebellion. Okay, so fearless for the good of people and for a sign against rebellion. Look at verses five to six of chapter five. It says when, so now Micah's looking forward um, and he says this, when the Assyrians come into our land and treads in our places, palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Man, people get weird with numbers in the Bible. Don't be weird with numbers in the Bible. Don't do numerology. That's weird, okay? Um, What we can understand all through the Old Testament, like sometimes there's a literal understanding, like he really means seven, or he really means eight. The only other alternative is that sometimes they're used symbolically. I really believe those numbers are being used symbolically here, not in a weird way, but just very, here's what I mean. Seven is the number of perfection, right? Perfection. So there aren't seven different shepherds. This is an expression of Micah saying, the perfect shepherd who cares perfectly for his people will be here. Not seven of them, one and the perfect one. So when he invokes the number eight, then we don't need eight princes when Jesus is here. If seven's perfect, eight is like, man, we don't need all this. And that's what he's saying about Jesus. It's more than enough. You don't need everything that Jesus brings to the table. One of Jesus is enough for everybody, okay? Perfect and more than enough. And they they or he shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Uh, Assyria and Nimrod. Nimrod was like the mightiest of men, the mightiest of warriors. And so Assyria and Nimrod here are being used categorically for all future enemies of God's people. And God's just saying, look, when my rescuing shepherd and king here is here, you, you, you're afraid of Assyria and Nimrod here. Your fear will be eradicated from your hearts by this by the presence of your rescuing king. His presence eradicates fear. Because we know that our shepherd will defend us, and because he does, we have no reason to fear, no inadequacy to be afraid of. He's perfect, and he's more than enough. So we are a fearless family, even though we may be surrounded by those who are opposed to us. No thing. No thing because of the presence of our king. So we're not only fearless, though. Check this out. We exist for the good of people. Verse 7 of chapter 5, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like what? dew, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. Dew on the grass. Did you grow up in the country at all? Did you ever run barefoot in the early morning dew on the grass? You ever see, you do to look out and see the sun glistening off the dew in the grass. Dew is symbolic of blessing in the Bible because it gives life. It gives refreshment and it gives renewal and it makes things green. You don't need the rain as long as you have the dew every morning. Guys, that's the presence our father intends for us to have in this world, the gentle presence of an early morning dew. Not power, not a political voting block, not fighting a culture war. Don't buy into that garbage. There is no culture war. Jesus is not fighting a culture war. Christians are not called to fight and win a culture war to make something great again or to win something back. Right? Christians in Russia aren't trying to win Russia back for Jesus. Christians in Uganda aren't trying to make Uganda like Jesus thing. Like Christians in America, we're not called to make uh, America a Christian nation. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's pulling rebels from every one of those places, and he's making a better and more perfect kingdom of which he is king. Don't get caught up in the culture war business. Gentle presence, life-giving. So I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. So here's what I thought of when I saw this verse right here. This was the slogan in the early 90s for Mountain Dew. Do the Dew, baby. Do the Dew. Now, for those of you who are too young, that's a soda pop right there. That's soda. (laughs) It's the original energy drink. Um, That's what it is. Like before y'all were feasting on your, the energy drinks that are sending y'all the heart attacks, just saying. But before that, there was Mountain Dew. Just bring that up one more time again. So do the Dew. Listen, all kidding aside, like they stole that from us. That's our family's thing right there. Do the Dew. Maybe be the Dew. But guys, can I, like, let's just ask this question. When is the last time we got up out of bed in the morning before we went to school or work or whatever our sphere of influence was and thought to myself, man, God's rescued me into his kingdom for the good of people. I get to exist like the refreshing, gentle presence of dew on the grass for the good of the people around me, even those who are opposed to me. No thing, because there's no fear because my Shepherd and king is present. I'm going to go be the dew today. Do we even think that way? Not really. But this is who we are. This is who our Father has called us to be. He's also called us to be for a sign against rebellion. Verse 8 says, The remnant of Jacob will be among, here it is again, among the nations. Not Christians don't leave the world. We don't form cloisters or convents or communities or communes or co-ops. You can have your co-op. I get it. You got a little school going on. No hate, no shade. Have your co-op. As long as your co-op is, is, is existing in the brokenness of our world, that we're supposed to be due there, among the nations in the midst of a lot of people, many peoples means not God's people, like out there peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver. So like a lion. Now listen, that sounds angry and militant, right? It's not, that's not the picture that God is trying to pick. We are, the church is not called, we are not militant Again, we're not, we're not fighting enemy, we're not fighting a war. What he's describing as a young lion is a picture of strength, And something that is unstoppable. Why? We are strong and unstoppable because two reasons. The presence of our shepherd and king. No fear. And because we fully understand why we exist. For the good of other people. So it doesn't matter what they do. We're going to be the dew. Like we're going to be the gentle morning dew. That is a fearless picture of a young lion running around. But there's another piece here. And that is the gospel. The message that has rescued us and been entrusted to us. And the message that shapes our culture. The gospel stands as a sign against rebellion and injustice and show if our culture is shaped by the gospel, we will stand as a, as a sign against rebellion and injustice and that, that sign is deeply threatening to rebels and to systemic rebellion and we will be hated for that. But we don't hate in return. And we don't destroy in return. We exist as the gentle morning dew in return. Even if somebody postures themselves against us as an enemy, what does Jesus call us to do with our enemies? love them. The gentle morning dew. All right. So you're like, man, John, that's our family, fearless for the good of others, for a sign against rebellion. Awesome. Jesus is our shepherding king who uses his power to restore us. Got it. He gave his life for me on the cross. He died in my place. He rose again. He defeated death on my behalf and he lives for me now. Got it. But John, I don't belong. I don't fit that culture that you just described. I have so many remaining rebel tendencies. Like you don't see them on the surface, but I am the opposite of all of these things you just described. And I have so many wounds. I want to be restored, but I'm not feeling it and I'm not fearless. I don't, I don't rehearse the morning dew, I don't, I don't do that. I, I don't exist intentionally for the good of others. As a sign against rebellion, like I, I'm still rebelling. I can't do this i have misused power position and influence i don't belong in this kingdom you know what micah would say if he were looking you in the eyes right now you're right you don't belong in this kingdom you can't get yourself into this kingdom you can't eradicate these rebel tendencies on your own none of us belong but again what has the final word hope and so here it is. Here's the hopeful word. This shepherd and king will stop at nothing to restore rebel kids who are completely unqualified to be in his family, to be in this kingdom, and he will be the one to make us qualified. And he will be the one to root out our rebel tendencies. Check this out. Here's how the chapter finishes, verses 10 and 11. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. You're like, John, I thought the final word was hope. That's, that sounds really, really bad. Well, no, listen, that's, our rescuing king, saying that he will stop at nothing to take away your sense of strength, autonomy, and independence that you and your rebellion have found outside of Jesus, and he will do everything to make sure that it is anchored fully and finally and only in Jesus, and that will be the first time that wounds are finally healed and and your uh, remaining rebel tendencies will be eradicated. Now notice what he's going after, their perceived strength. He's going after their weapons. Do you see that? Horses, chariots, their right to bear arms. eh? I mean, he's going after their strengths and their weapons. So check this out. If Micah were speaking to American Christians today, maybe he would say stuff like, dog, your confidence is far more in the second amendment than it is in the second advent of Jesus. And I'm going to fix that. Maybe he's saying to you, you have too much hope invested in any one president's second term, and you need to be more hopeful for the shepherding king's second return. Maybe he's saying you focus way too much on your constitutional rights and not enough focus on Christ's resurrection in your place. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to stop at nothing to root these things from your heart. I will qualify you for the kingdom, and I will root out all of your rebel tendencies Because there's a lot of quit in us as rebels. There is no quit in Christ. He's also going to root out all of our God substitutes. Verses 12 to 14. I'm going to cut off your sorceries from your hand. Good, take it. I'm going to take off your tellers of fortunes. Good, take them. I'm going to cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, my idols. Good, take them. And you will bow down no more to the work of your hands. Good, take it. Because what do I bow down to every day? The works of my hands powerless to eradicate. Take them. And I will root out your Asherah images. Good, take it from among you and I will destroy your cities. Good, Jesus. Take anything that lies to me and tells me I have what I need apart from Jesus. Take it and destroy it and give me a heart that is satisfied in you. See guys, this is all a statement of mercy, not judgment. This is our shepherd and king saying, I'm gonna rip all of this away. I'm gonna heal your wounds and I'm gonna restore your heart and I'm gonna make you whole. This is our hope right here. And then a final word of judgment. Um, Maybe it's anticlimactic to end with this, but it's really important to hear. Verse 15, And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Guys, that's just our father's kind, kind, kind way of ending to say one more time, you need to turn to him as your restoring shepherd king today, or you will face him as your judge tomorrow. That's our father's final word to you out of kindness Turn to me and know mercy today. Don't assume tomorrow, because if you wait till tomorrow, you'll likely know me as your judge and not your restoring shepherd and king. So guys, in summary, our rebel hearts misuse power to rule, but our rescuing shepherd king will use his power to restore. Jesus has mercy for the wounded, and Jesus has mercy for the wounders. There is more mercy in Jesus than misuse of power in you, so take heart. And when we come to the table this morning to celebrate communion, our family's meal, guess who's coming to the table? Wounded ones and wounding ones, together in the same family, reconciled by the blood of Jesus. We don't have two different families. There's not like the wounders and the oppressed and the the wounding ones and the oppressors. No. Jesus' justice is so beautiful and so complete that we're actually rescued into the same family, the wounded ones and the wounding ones. And just one final word for those of you who are not Christians who may be here with us. I just want to press this with you a little bit more. When you long for justice, that's beautiful. Behind that longing, you may not know him by name yet, but you long for Jesus. And when you long for a good king, you long for the shepherd king. He's your rightful king. And when you long for a more perfect country, you're longing for Jesus' perfect kingdom. When you long for just equity, you long for Jesus' eternal kingdom and you belong in it guys your hopes always going to be disappointed in another human a president or a king always and your desire for that perfect leader or a more perfect union is beautiful and to be commended and to be pursued in the already but not yet pursue it but understand behind that pursuit your heart is really pursuing this king who you will find out if you pursue him has already been pursuing you And family, if you're already, if you've already experienced the mercy from your rescuing shepherd king, let's confess again our misuse of influence, power, and position. Let's turn to him and find mercy. And normally at this time, we have one of our pastors come and lead us in a prayer of confession, but we've decided we'd like to increasingly include those of you in our family who are not on our pastoral team, men and women. So uh, Lauren prayed for us in our first gathering, and uh, Ben's going to come now and just pray as the spirit has spoken to him to confess and find mercy in Jesus.